Yuni Yukuti, founder and CEO of Lumi. Welcome to the Unicorns. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to speak to you, Justin. Yuni, can you tell me about Lumi? What, what is the business and how did you get started? So Lumi is an SME lender. Um, in the broad category of startups um, called fintechs or financial technology. Um, our products are designed at providing debt products to SMEs. And more specifically, we provide uh, short and medium term uh, loans to both small and medium sized enterprises here in Australia. We're talking at an, in- we're, we're talking at an interesting time, obviously in the, in the midst of a global health pandemic, um, world markets have been decimated. How how has your business, or what observations can you give us about lending, the Australian economy, how small businesses are going? Because I imagine you'd be a, a good barometer of that. Yeah, I think we're a very good barometer, and you know we've been quite proactive on that, and we've sort of engaged um, stakeholders and you know, sort of the broadly defined team, Australia Treasury. Um, other other branches of government to provide them with the data that we have because we think we're in the coal face um, of the economic disruption that happened over the last um, couple of months. I think you know I'll put aside you know any comment about you know the medical situation and lockups necessary unnecessary. Obviously, I've I've got my opinions, but they're not any more qualified than anybody else's. Uh, it's not my profession. Um, and it's something of hot debate at home because my wife's a doctor and she has a very different view to me. But <laughs> essentially... She'd have more of an idea. Well, she would. She, she has more of an idea on most things, like I'll even say like about my, you know, my business. You know. um, but um, essentially, I think... Yeah, you know, I'll start with the bad. Obviously, you know, it comes as no surprise that there's been massive economic pain and economic disruption over the lockdown period, especially businesses yes. which require discretionary spending or out of home spending. So, you know, retail, cinemas, you know, mani pedis, haircuts, etc., have been completely decimated, and that period of time that they haven't been trading will be very hard for them to catch up. You know, some of them will survive, some of them will not. Uh, now as we're coming out, I think the the economic response or the policy response of the government has been overwhelmingly good um, in terms of JobKeeper, um, the, the government SME guarantee scheme, and the Structured Finance Specialty Fund, which are programs that are specifically designed at helping small businesses trade through the crisis. Um, so you know, JobKeeper, most of your listeners would be familiar with. Essentially, the government's um, sponsoring continued employment. For us as a business, it helped a lot. You know, We qualified. It helped, it helped us keep a lot of our stuff. We actually didn't make anyone redundant or stand down, which is, I think, quite unusual in the space. Which is good. Mm. It, it's, it's very good. We made a lot of sacrifices. So we, we took a different path and everyone in the business took a salary sacrifice um, to keep the team together. And I think it was the right thing to do. Um, in terms of the SME guarantee and the structured finance specialty fund, essentially those are two programs by... Um, the government, one's run by Treasury, one's run by uh, Australian Office of Financial Management, which essentially make uh, lending out to small businesses by lenders like Lumi easier. So the government mm. is guaranteeing some of our losses and is also providing us with money 
to lend out. So they'll push a lot of liquidity into SME Australia to help these businesses trade out of the lockdown and especially businesses that have suffered. You know, we mentioned retail, hospitality, um, broadly anything that's uh, reliant on discretionary um, spending. I think, you know, it's, you know, tourism, travel will also be hurt, you know, and, and these are all interconnected, right? Like yesterday I had um, dinner with good friends that came over for, for dinner and um, the guy owns, you know, several restaurants and, you know, we're talking about like sort of planning and opening it up and his venues are quite big. Um, yes. And, you know, the problem is not just the ability to serve, you know, X amount of customers, it's gone from 10 to 50 um, or whatever the number will be going forward, you know, specifically to his restaurant, but it's not unique to him, is a large percentage of his clientele are foreign tourists. And until the borders open up, you know, those you know, tourists are right. coming back. Yes. Um, so, you know, his business is nominally in hospitality, but, you know, very, very reliant on tourism, right? So, like, it's all very interconnected. Um, my mm. personal view is, you know, in the short term, maybe even in the medium term, um, the Australian economy will do um, reasonably well, or I should say comparatively well, will do badly, but comparatively well to um, other economies. In the longer term, I think there's going to be um, a struggle because Australia will also will have to at some point trade off our eradication of COVID um, and keeping the borders closed for a prolonged period of time with the benefits of globalization and travel, right? So Australia is a very small open economy that's far away from um, its supply chains and we're reliant on travel uh, to maintain those supply chains, whether it's a small you know, small business owner going to, you know, to China or Indonesia to you know, source product that they sell online. Yes, or, yes. You know, so it doesn't matter if it's like sort of import and export, uh, but you know, a prolonged period of time where Australia remains closed will have a very, very strong effect um, on both our imports and exports. Um, it's going to have a big impact on the tertiary education um, sector. And at some point, I think the government will have to sort of trade off the benefits of lockdown, which you know, undoubtedly are beneficial with the benefits of resuming international trade which australia is exceptionally reliant on so what what role then can fintechs play during during this crisis particularly helping smbs that are struggling so i think the key is to just originate high volumes of loans in a short period of time during periods of work disruption which fintechs are institutionally designed to do and the banks struggle so my view has always been and this was reaffirmed by COVID that, you know, the banks need to support, and they have you know, some more than others, but they have to some degree support the fintechs on the front end where the banks essentially remain sort of back-end or institutional supporters of fintechs. And, it, you know, it's you know, the relationship is slightly different in different verticals, whereas the bank doesn't have any advantage in customer experience, developing new products, and actually sort of engaging with the customer. I don't know when was the last time you sort of walked into a bank branch, had like sort of a front-end interaction with a bank. Never, uh, never. Well, well and I have recently, and it like leaves a lot to be desired, right? Um, and, you know, the fintechs have that advantage. The banks have the advantage 
first and foremost of access to capital, um, both in terms of the amount of capital, but also the cost of capital. And at this point, also customers. And I've always thought that the relationship between banks and fintechs is a very symbiotic one, as opposed to you know Uber and taxis. I'm looking out of my windows um, as we speak, and I see like the, the taxi rank out here in uh, Bondi Junction, and it never seems to move. And even now, like people barely take taxis. Mm. You know, like you know, so there it's a very adversarial relationship. Like we've never seen our bank our relationship with banks. And the banking sector is adversarial, but there's um, symbiotic. So what was it that made you get into this particular role? You, know, um, you, you, you talked about some of, some of your professional background, but, but running, running a fintech, lending to small businesses, I, I imagine, could not be an easy thing to do. No, listen, I'm glad that it's not easy because then everyone would do it, right? So... It's one of those things that, you know, you sort of find yourself fall into as opposed to um, dreaming about sort of growing up. So as, as I mentioned, I sort of found myself in Australia um, and I was looking for something to do. I was sort of uh, uh, late 30s at that point in time. I've always had that entrepreneurial zeal and I was looking for, for my next adventure. I thought uh, now is the time. Uh, for me to do it, you know, I had a shipping background. Like shipping industry is not that big in Australia, and specifically on in Sydney. So there was, there weren't that many sort of jobs at sort of the level mm. um, that yes. I got accustomed to in London. I thought, you know, the opportunity cost is very, very low. Um, at that point in time, um, this whole fintech revolution was starting um, in Israel, and most Israeli companies were for, were focusing westwards. So. UK, Western Europe, and the United States, very, very few, if at all, were sort of looking east, which I think is you know, sort of a strategic mistake. And at some point, I said, listen, I can do this. And I think in Australia, it's exceptionally, uh, it's an exceptionally good market because A, there's a very high proportion of SMEs um, in terms of the overall economy. And B, the banking sector is also very, very concentrated. So, you, as, as everyone knows, you know, the, you know, big four banks. Then there's a very sort of steep cliff after that between sort of number four and number five. Um, and the, the, specifically, the SME sector is very, very underbanked. So, you grew up in Israel, and That's you right. spent a lot of your life. You spent a lot of your life in Israel. Can you give our listeners a sense of what that was like? Um, so yeah, I grew up in it, like born and bred. Um, I spent a few years of my childhood in the UK at Oxford. My, my late dad was a history professor, but most of my young formative years I spent in Israel. I think you know, Israel is very different to Australia, and it's a very direct culture. It's 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 quite Middle Eastern, so it's I almost sometimes say it's sort of rude to be polite because sort of people will think you're like aloof and condescending. So, mm. you know, people ask direct questions, they give direct answers, but it, it's very much a, a society that values um, resourcefulness. Um, and I think that's something that sort of helps you know, people become entrepreneurs later in life because it's, it requires a lot of resourcefulness and out-of-the-box thinking. Um, another thing that another attribute that's quite, you know quite unusual, or I should say quite unique to Israel, but is unusual elsewhere, and I think it's also served me quite well. 
um, is mandatory military service. So I spent three years um, in the military, as all um, 18-year-old men um, are required to do. I you know, spent time, It's, it's uh, compulsory. It is compulsory. It's for both men and women. So Israel and North Korea are the only two countries that have uh, mandatory conscription for women. Um, uh, it's a little bit shorter. It's 20 months for women and 36 months for men. Um, is, spent... is, that, is that full-time or part-time? No, no, full-time. Full, full-time. You're, uh, you're in there. You, that, that's it. That is, your, that is your life. That is your life. Um, basic training, then advanced. Listen, they're different jobs, right? So... You know, one person's a fighter pilot, one guy, you know, or lady sort of dresses salad at like sort of the the main base, right? So like it's, you know, it's a very, it can be a very, very different experience for different people. I, I was, um, I was, I did basic training with, uh, with the paratroopers and then went to um, a special forces unit um, and spent three years there. And I think that really gives you um, time to develop as a young adult like you're 18 so you know sort of instead of doing schoolies uh you're in a much more sort of structured and challenging environment but it gives you like a mm. sense of perspective and a sense of purpose and especially now like COVID-19 like as hard as things got as chat and at the beginning it was like challenging like we of sort of getting up in the morning saying like listen this is not going to end well this could really really end badly like mm. you always said, listen you know this is not the hardest day I've ever faced got over part of things and I think it really gives you sort of the strength of character and the ability to overcome challenges and resilience that most people that don't go through those experiences just don't have and that is a massive advantage as an as an entrepreneur because like you get curveballs all the time. So it's interesting if you scan the globe and find out like the best places on the planet for tech research, innovation, entrepreneurship, you know, always in, in, in the top five, sometimes the top three, the list is Israel. What, why is that? Partly for the reasons that I've mentioned. Um, we have this out-of-the-box thinking, very, very strong sense of resourcefulness. Secondly, you know, there's we started early in... Um, innovation and startup culture so whereas in australia this is sort of i don't know a five ten year thing and you know everyone you know sort of knows you know the guys from atlassian and you know now you've got the guys from afterpay which are sort of becoming uh, role models for sort of nerds at university and everyone sort of wants to emulate them in israel that's been going on for i don't know 20 or 30 or 40 years already so we've got okay. sort of two or three vintages before that Typically, those people, after they make a successful exit, become um, VC investors and mentors to the younger generation. So there are just dozens of those uh, role models. Whereas in Australia, I could tell you four. Uh, you know, in a country of twenty-five million, and you know, in Israel, they'll, you know, easily be sort of twenty or fifty or you know, or, or, or there. And so there's a lot more money also going in, especially into early stage. Um, okay. And it just everyone wants to be in a startup. It's culturally, whereas, you know, I don't know, you know, young kids growing up here, they want to be, I don't know, NRL players or rugby or AFL or whatever it is. You know, like Australia really values sport. And then sort of mm. other so, sort of social um, sort of value, like sort of a 
professional, you know, professional job. Like in Israel, like you, you literally can't get an Uber without the guy telling you about the start. I remember, like I was, you know, my previous startup, like I, I was spending a little bit of time in um, Israel. At, uh, we had a WeWork office there, which is a, a sort of a whole different story about WeWork. But like, um, and you know, you, I was just talking to all the guys that were working at WeWork. Like they were working there part time, all working on their own startup. So like, if you know, if you walk around Tel Aviv. And it's a you know, much smaller city than Sydney. It's about you know, six or 700,000. You know, go through the day and you'll see like you know, hundreds of people you know, sitting in cafes during the day on their laptops. Each you know, high percentage of those guys are sort of working on sort of startup ideas. Now, obviously, like 90% of those like, will never end up doing anything, like achieving anything, you know, they'll do another one, another. But you know, it's, it's a numbers game, right? Whereas in Australia, you know, the numbers are a lot smaller. Um, so it necessarily, um, you, know, you know, the success stories are, are a lot fewer. And again, going back to the culture, despite sort of this Ned Kelly ethos of Australians and larrikinism and rule breakers, Australians by and large are rule followers and that has many benefits, right? Like it's a great country to live in, you know, law and order, it's clean, it's organized, etc. The unintended consequence of that—it's not very innovative. Mm. What about raising money? No doubt that's um, something you've had to battle with. Um, start starting up your own business. Have you have you turned to Israel over the years as a as a source of, of funding? So in my current business, I've got debt funding out of Israel. All of my equity funding is in Australia. From Australia, I should say, um, early stage equity investing is, um, especially at the VC level, is very uh, regional. You know, like the investors want to be close to their businesses. Um, yes. So I think it's quite hard. And Israel is very much an Israeli. Sorry, it's a very much an early stage VC center. Any company that gains any sort of uh, minimum scale moves to moves to the US straight away. They'll send one of the founders to the valley. And start raising more money there. In Australia, there's actually um, a lot of money. There's got a, you know a lot of VCs have raised money. Again, more skewed to sort of early than uh, mid or late stage. Um, and yeah, raising money is never easy. You know, like, you know the VC investors here in Australia are just as uh, smart and as shrewd. Um, and if anything, they can be more selective because you know you know the the fewer uh, good investment opportunities. So just by sheer numbers. So, um, but no, invest, uh, raising money, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very hard process, but something that you, you need to be good at to be able to uh, grow companies. I've got a note here saying that the real reason you came to Australia back um, whenever it was, was you were, you were, you were chasing love. It was, it was for a woman. Is that right? That is right. It's, um, and she's, Ended up being my wife and happily married, so that that gamble ended uh, worked out really well for me. Yeah, <laughs> you've got to follow your instincts, right? Like you've got to follow. I'm glad there's a, I'm glad there's a good answer to the yeah, end of yeah. that story. And you know, like the irony is, I always joke like the lady that I went out before I met my wife. I was living in London at the time. I was living in Northwest London, 
And it was literally two or three weeks before I met my wife. I was going out with this lady and yeah, genuinely like a lovely, lovely lady. And I was just thinking, you know, she just lives too far. I'm like Northwest. I was living in uh, Belsize Park at the time and she was just sort of south of the river, just sort of after um, um, the Isle of Dogs. And I said, you know what, like I just can't handle like a long distance relationship across London. And sort of I broke up with her and then, you know, sort of two or three weeks later, uh, later I met um, uh, Gila, she was living in Sydney and I ended up chasing her here to Australia. And I've never actually been to Australia before that, didn't plan, it wasn't even on sort of on bucket list to to visit. I'm not particularly beachy or, or, or outdoorsy, so like it never appealed to me and yeah, ended up... Uh, being here, Australian wife, Australian child, spend my weekends uh, watching kids cricket, like a game that I know nothing about. But um, <laughs> no, that's how the cookie what, crumbled. What were, you, what were your first impressions upon coming to coming to Sydney? Just how it goes back to what I was saying before. You know, you sort of like one's view of Australia is sort of crocodile done well first you know first movie about Australia was obviously BMX bandits but then it was sort of the more formative was sort of crocodile Dundee and you, mm. you know you just think of everything as sort of a little bit like having this frontier um mentality and yes. I remember like literally the first couple of days we were walking around like how rules-based Australia is I remember walking with my wife she was living in Randwick at the time and we just went for a walk and you know there was like this little patch of grass it was like essentially like a glorified traffic island but they had like a, this they thought it was like a park they had like this big sign no horse riding no golfing no i remember just looking at the sign i'm saying like i can think of like another 300 things that surely you're not allowed to do on this little patch of grass but like do you really need a sign and then you know sort of <laughs> like um and the again the irony is like at the beginning moving back from london moving here from london you know I wasn't single, you know, we were sort of a young couple, but like we were married and we didn't have kids. I find I found it really sort of restrictive um, and it didn't appeal to me that much. Um, and then we got married, had a child. We moved to London um, and then moved back here. And then all of the things that um, you sort of don't like as someone without kids, all of a sudden as a father to a young family, you sort of love. Like, I don't care about like the lockdown laws. I love it that it's so organized and safe and clean and sterile. Um, yes. Um, and now I've really learned to, uh, to appreciate it. So let's, let's quickly talk about COVID. Obviously, many businesses are struggling. Some are thriving. But throughout all of this crisis, there is going to be innovation. What, what, is, what is your view on how companies emerge from the darkness and what they will have to do to survive? Do you think it's inevitable that every business will, will have to change the way they, they work, the way they operate, the way they build customers? There's just a, just a new economy in effect. Yeah, I think, again, depends what you do, but I think most businesses will have to adjust quite considerably, you know, for, for good and for bad, right? Like even businesses that are doing quite well, I don't know, I'm sure like the guys at Zoom also had to adjust to um, um, to COVID, right? like hiring some, yeah, bigger bank account, more sales team, more support team, et cetera. So like it, it doesn't matter which sort of which side of the ledger you are, like you need to adjust. So I think long-term adjustments are, there's going to be, I think, a prolonged change in customer demand and 
spending patterns. So again, going back to the example of restaurants, right? Now people are going to start preferring smaller venues, probably a little bit cheaper food, uh, looking more for more value for money. So I think any existing business would sort of have to see exactly what is the value proposition that they're offering um, customers. I'm, I think you know the 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 assumption that you know the prolonged periods of work from home and the changes in the office, like there are going to be some changes, but I'm, I don't think it's like the, the the death of the office. You know, at the end of the day, most people are, are social. There's a massive benefit from working together. You know, you know, maybe we'll move from like away from big open offices to you know, more sort of one day at home. You know, four days in the office. Like I, I don't know. Different businesses will, re- will respond slightly differently, but I, I just don't see many people wanting to you know work from home for. Uh, for the rest of their for the rest of their working life, and I think it's the end of civilization if it happens. Um, but innovation is is going to be a driver for, for for everything. And innovation is not just you know some nerd sitting there and sort of solving some code Coding. problem or or you know innovation is you know a small cafe trying to think. Listen, this is my business. These are my premises. These are my customers. This is my neighborhood. How do I change? How do I adapt to changes in customer preferences to capture as much of that local market as I can? Change the seating, change the menu, you know, change the offering. Um, and, and interestingly, you know, you, you know, you asked me about Israel and Tel Aviv. So Tel Aviv is a city like it's literally got hundreds and hundreds of cafes um, with people sitting for long periods of time. Like more cafes than restaurants and. One of the reasons people think so many cafes developed and it's got like such a strong cafe culture, and it possibly something that could happen in Australia, you know, it's got the weather for it, is in 2002, um, Israel went through like a 2001, 2002 after the dot com crash, and then the, uh, political unrest, you know, Israel went through a massive recession, and customers or consumers really stopped going to restaurants and that really killed the fine dining scene in Israel. Like there just wasn't enough demand for it. But people wanted affordable luxuries instead of spending, I don't know, X at a, you know, going out for a restaurant with your significant other and, you know, getting a starter main dessert and a bottle of wine. You know, they you know, they went to a cafe which was a little bit more affordable, spend a little, but you know, still had that night out, etc. So and mm. businesses that adapted to that changes in um, preferences did really well and it's i think it's it's going to change the composition of uh the discretionary spending another thing is i think you know domestic tourism is going to be um on the rise you know so you know so businesses that were reliant on foreign travel that can attract um local customers will do well the future is hard to predict right yuni yakutiel we are out of time on the unicorns thank you very much for your time today Thank you very much for having me.